You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and today we're heading to Atlanta to Zoom meet Kay Toyan Ogbebi. I first heard of Kay actually because of my former beloved Twitter. Um, we broke <laughs> up. It's a thing. but We miss you on that. Uh, Kay was one of the co-founders. <laughs> I don't miss it, but it's okay. I miss y'all. Um, Kay was one of the co-founders, though, of this excellent, amazing abolitionist resource called Eight to Abolition that went viral back in 2020. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking that out. But Kay has done so many other amazing things. So Kay Toyan is a black lesbian and disabled organizer, a writer, a macro social worker from Georgia. And the majority of Kay's work revolves around political education, writing, and organizing strategy in regards to ending the PIC, the prison industrial complex. Before being in Atlanta and organizing Atlanta, they were organizing in New York City and were a part of a bunch of things uh, that we have talked about and met, um, with other guests on this podcast. So the No New Jails campaign, Inside Outside Collective, and Survived and Punished New York. So Kay is good people, dope person, amazing. And also, this is a really exciting episode because this is somehow, for some reason that I don't know... But it happened. This is the first Audre Lorde book that we've ever had on our podcast. And I am shocked because that like if any book that had a single most like permanent impact on me, it wasn't specifically this Audre Lorde book, to be fair, but uh, the collection of her writings inspired my first tattoo. Um, and I just, yeah, shout out to the Lord. Um, and so you can hopefully <laughs> you get that. that reference. But um, what we're talking about today is Kay's love and learnings from Audrey's biomythography, which is Zami, a new spelling of my name. And if you don't know what a biomythography is, well, you're in luck. And, uh, and it's different from a biomythology I learned five minutes ago. Um, before I share my highlights, I want to just welcome, introduce my co-host, Monica. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. It's a very rainy, gloomy day today, which is perfect for this conversation. Yeah, yes, which excellent <laughs> transition because y'all get ready. Guess, I think we say this every time, but get yourself some hot tea, some hot cocoa, something comforting and warm because this episode was, it, it was just hard. It, you know, it hits on grief and it hits on uh, loss and it hits on mistakes and failure and regret and all of those hard, messy things that happen to us inevitably, but we don't always talk about. And I know for me, it really stirred up a lot of memories that um, I have been processing. And this this conversation was a big part of it. And it, I think it sped it up a little bit because it, it was just digging deep into that vault. And if you aren't familiar with Audre Lorde, I think you'll learn a lot about her life from this. Um, and something that I really appreciated that Toyin shared in this episode is that this book isn't about Audre the icon who is perfect, right? And was like the baddest, best revolutionary. It, it's not that at all. And that part of what you see in this story is her messiness and she had anger and anger temper a temper and it asks questions and maybe gives some insight into how do we grow what are our responsibilities when we yeah to, to learn from these things that happen to us or that we do yeah and just acknowledging that like we all fuck up right and Audrey included in that um and and I just I really appreciate books that are able to tell history without insisting on like a perfect hero um and so I think that's really a really cool part uh, of this conversation what, I, what did you think Monica 
Yes, facing and embracing the messiness. We just talked about relationships, y'all, and it was awkward, tender, and real. And I'm just going to repeat what you said real quick for folks because I think it's a key question. What are our responsibilities to learn from these things that happen to us or that we do? Because the reality I'm grappling with is that sometimes what we learn from relationships that end and our growth that comes from those experiences can also mean someone else's trauma. And we have to be real about that. And this is the first time that we really got into grief and the teachings of relationships in this podcast, which is wild to me in hindsight, because those are two very huge parts of organizing. We can't organize without forming relationships, and we don't organize without experiencing loss. And I get that we have to compartmentalize sometimes, or else it can all just be super devastating, too devastating, because there's the grief of relationships that end and how we continue navigating community and moving the work forward. And then there's the grief that is constant in organizing, which is the loss of life that comes from oppressive institutions like policing and prisons and war. So I just really appreciated that we got to reckon with some of those things in this episode with Kay through Audrey's book. And then we emphasize the role of grief in abolitionist organizing. We actually had Kay read their closing passage, but then the conversation just kept rolling and, and so we just let it happen. Lastly, I want to lift up what you and Kay both said about seeing Audre Lorde beyond the Christmas card character and beyond her as just a poet with, you know, really good one-liners because the reality is she, like all of us, uh, was a really complex human being. And she was also a black, disabled, lesbian, radical communist, y'all. All of those pieces of her identity get left behind so often. And I'm glad we were able to uplift that in this conversation. And there's also this really tender part in the conversation at the end where we talked about what we would tell our younger selves about organizing and it was just really touching yeah yeah I think that's the best intro we can make you know it's it's a lot um and it's all and it's necessary and we're really grateful that we got to have this conversation and to share it with you all so on that note let's just get into it enjoy You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt. We must disobey. We must agitate. We must escalate. We must break. We must create. We must evolve. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago. This is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledged. So today we're talking about Zami, a new spelling of my name by the late poet Audre Lorde, written in 1982. Uh, the book is written as a biomythography, meaning sort of a melding of biography, mythology, and history. But yeah, Kay, we're so happy to finally have you on the show talking about this book with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am so thrilled. I don't know, Kay, have we, I don't think we've ever met. Is that right? Yeah, I don't think we have either. Yeah, I think I first became aware of you. Did you do Eight to Abolition? Is that you? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, excellent. Yes. Okay, so can you tell us more? Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do what you do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm Kay or Toyin. Um, I'm 
I'm 27. I recently relocated to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm an organizer, writer, and uh, macro social worker for my day job. And yeah, like you mentioned, I co-created Aid to Abolition. And um, when I was in New York, I was active in Survived and Punished New York chapter and also the No New Jails campaign. Um, and right now I'm working on a book for University of California Press and organizing with my friends on a campaign to free my friend, uh, Ashley Diamond. And yeah, the majority of my work revolves around abolition, survivor defense campaigns, and I guess ending the prison industrial complex. And outside of that, I spend a lot of time with my dog. So tell us a little bit about what led you to read this book. Like, do you remember where you were when you first read it? Um, yeah, why did you choose this book to talk about today? Yeah, I remember when I first like purchased this book, it was at the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn, New York. And I was looking for another Audre Lorde book actually, and they didn't have it. So the worker there encouraged me to pick up this book. And because it said it was a biomythography and I didn't know what that meant, I was always hesitant to read the book. <laughs> um, so I finally like picked it up and then I went to this coffee shop called Green Grape Cafe, which is sadly closed. And I just like read a little bit of it and I was hooked. Um, so I, I guess I picked it up because I was trying to read more Audre Lorde. I feel like I started reading her really late and I felt behind. But then during this period, I think it was 2019, I read like, a lot of her work back to back to back. So that's kind of what inspired me to pick it up. Wonderful. Yeah. Audre Lorde was one of those, I, I don't know where my life would be if I hadn't, someone hadn't handed me Sister Outsider at a very specific time in my life. And I, I did read Zombie. I don't remember it very well. Um, but I, I, and I remember um, the genre as being really interesting. And so I guess, can we start with that? What is a biomythography? I actually, I teach reading and writing to middle school students and genre is this like obnoxious thing that we, we put binaries on everything, right? And I think even in, in her genre, right? And in the way that, that Audre Lorde is shaping her narrative, it seems like she's really pushing the boundaries and breaking binaries. So, so can you tell us more about what the book is about and how she shapes it and what this biomythography genre is? Yeah, so from what I'm understanding, a biomythography is kind of like a mix of like autobiography with also some like fictional elements. But when I heard that, I like went into the book thinking that there would be like maybe like magical realism or like stuff like that. But I, I wouldn't say that's the case. Like it all reads as like a regular autobiography to the point where I'm like, I actually don't know what parts of the book are fictional, um, which is kind of it's kind, it was frustrating for me at first, but now it's kind of exciting because it gives me like a lot of stuff that I can research um, to compare like to what she writes in the book. Uh, but basically the book is the story of her life. Um, it starts off with her relationship with her mother, which is like a really big theme in the book. And has also a really big theme in my life, which is part of the reason that I chose this book for the podcast, but um, it goes into her, like, her, I guess, I want to say her, like, maybe her early 20s, and, um, but don't quote me on that, but it just talks about the first couple of jobs that she had, how she, like, came to, like, 
um, work at a library. And also what is really impactful for me about the book is just, it talks about her sexuality and her relationship to that and like what it meant to be a black lesbian at that time. And when I read this book, it was just like the perfect timing for me because um, I don't know, it was just like right on time. It really helped me realize more about my gender and my sexuality and also just, uh, it was affirming to know that like the things that I was struggling with weren't new, like other people had gone through them before. Um, and so that was really helpful. I identify as first generation because my dad's a Nigerian immigrant and I guess before this book, I didn't really connect with Audrey about like feeling like first gen. I don't know why I'm acting like I know her. I'm like connecting with her. But book <laughs> <laughs> allowed me to relate to her in that way too, which is really helpful. A couple years later, I started collecting first edition copies of books, um, especially like Black feminist texts. And that's been really grounding and exciting for me. And so I was able to collect a first edition version of Zami. And having that like in my home makes me feel really, really confident um, just because I'm able to have like a piece of black lesbian history. And so that's part of the reason like why I wanted to talk about the book today because I'm like, oh, I have this cool collector's item. <laughs> but also I think that if someone wanted to like sum me up in a book, I would point them to this book. Um, so yeah, it's my favorite. And not just because I'm like, oh, this is the most entertaining, but it's like one of the first times that I've like opened a book and been like, oh, I'm I'm not alone. Like um, the thoughts that I'm having, they make sense to other people, um, even if those people are like long gone. So I think that's why I wanted to talk about it today. I'm curious, can you tell us more about, um, yeah, what was her life like? That And I, I understand that this is one of those books where you don't actually know what's fact versus fiction, but I, I also like the ways that, I don't know, it reminds me of another of my favorite book called The Things They Carried, where it's just like, what is a true story? Is it like because of the facts or is it because of the way, like it, the, the reality of, of that connection that you feel like that is true, right? And that's the truth that's trying to be told here. So I guess, can you tell us more about what we learn about Audrey in this book, um, her life, her relationships, and uh, if anything that seems unique to that time, but I'm really curious about the similarities that you, you see because it, yeah, it's what the 50s. Um, and so a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. Yeah, and honestly, reading the book, I feel like nothing has changed. <laughs> Fair points. Yeah. <laughs> I do not disagree. Audrey just has like a lot of, um, <sighs> drama is not the right word. I guess <laughs> unresolved conflict with the woman in her life that she's dating. Um, and as I'm getting closer to 30, I feel like I'm coming out of this phase, but from like 19 to like 25, I felt like I was dating a lot of people, um, usually women. And like through that period, I was able to like collect a lot of stories, but also learn more about myself and learn, learn more about what I want in romantic relationships. And I feel like Audrey does that in this book um, because she has to deal with like falling in love with people who don't treat her with respect. Um, and she also has to deal with the love of her life dying. Um, which is so, it's so traumatic, um, especially like back then where it's not like she can just hop on Tinder and like go find someone else. Like 
the love that she was experiencing back then, I imagine it felt really rare um, and really like really rare and really, I guess if I was like living back then, I would feel a lot of tension around my romantic relationships, like a lot of um, stress around making them work just because like what we were doing was so secretive um, and so forbidden. And so I think that's something that I can relate to a lot in the book. Um, and then also her relationship with her mom, um, just like this idea that you have to behave a certain way to feel willing of a parent's love and support. Um, that was a common theme that was instilled in me throughout my childhood. And I'm just working through now, um, especially in therapy. And so reading that Audrey felt that way was really helpful. And then there's also, there's a disabled organizer named T.L. Lewis. And T.L. was speaking on, I wanna say a panel. No, no, it was like a disability justice training that Miriam had actually put together. And T.L. was explaining that a lot of black people, uh, we have people in our family who are disabled and, um, they wouldn't necessarily like identify as disabled, but when you actually talk to them, they're disabled in the sense that it's like, oh, this person like always walks with a limp or this person um, is diabetic, et cetera. And that's kind of how I feel about Audrey because at the time I was, well, I guess I should have mentioned this in my intro, but I'm disabled. <laughs> and um, at the time of picking up this book, I was really just entering into like what disability justice meant to me. And I, I don't even think I identified as disabled at the time. Um, but when Audrey talks about her childhood and how I believe she was like held back in school. Um, and also she, she dealt with like a lot of vision problems that um, impacted her, like her academic trajectory. Um, I was able to be like, oh, she was disabled too. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't talk about. And then also, a lot of people don't talk about the fact that she was a communist um, and was organizing around that. I feel like Audrey has kind of become like, sometimes she can feel like a Christmas card like character now, a lot of the times like when people talk about her. But to me, like one of the most important parts about like identifying as a black lesbian feminist is being a communist. Um, and it, it was just affirming to like read her her political views in this book and read them so plainly. Can you can you expand on that point that you're making about the connections you see between sexuality and communism? Um, I, I really want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think a lot of times, especially with social media, um, a lot of times people will identify as Black feminist. And through using that term, what they mean is that they're typically like they're black women who uh believe in like feminist ideals but um there's like but like when it comes to like actually practicing it um they might not actually have a commitment to ending capitalism or like practicing like internationalist politics and so for me one of the things that like drew me to black feminism especially like black feminism that's been theorized by like lesbians is just um learning about those aspects like learning about like what it means to like be a communist um and how that like shows up in our practice even if we might not like explicitly name it like that um and so 
when Audrey is talking about the Rosenberg's trial and how, because those were two communist uh, organizers who were, I believe both of them were put to death by the US government. Um, when she talks about like that impact on her, um, that was really touching for me. And also, um, but she also talks about the fact that like, it was difficult organizing as a communist lesbian at that time because um, being a lesbian or like being gay was thought of as frivolous. Um, and so just seeing the ways that she brings her gender and her sexuality into her communist politics, um, I think was really enlightening for me, especially uh, organizing in New York. Can you talk a little bit about how class shows up in this book with Audrey? Yeah, so Audrey, um, I would, I, I think she slash I would identify her as growing up with a poor background um, and the job she has to take. Um, from what I remember, she was like working at like some kind of like plant um, where they were like building parts and things like that, which was really hard on her body. Um, and also class impacts the way that she's able to, to kind of find separation from her family um, because eventually she does move out, but she ends up living in living conditions that are not ex actually the best for her. And it's not until later in the book where it seems like Audrey is actually like comfortable financially. Um, class also shows up with, I, it impacts like the way that she's able to finish school um, and pay for school. And also just like when she talks about things like her appearance um, and dating, um, and then also like kind of, it, I think it shows up with the people that she dates. Like, I mean, I know it was a different time, but also in the book, Audrey does date like a lot of white people in this book. Um, and I imagine that that, um, like the class differences like show up a lot and or showed up a lot in her romantic relationships. Um, and yeah, sorry for the dog in the background. <laughs> I didn't realize, I didn't realize how many white woman she dated and I'm like at that time like so like racial differences show up a lot in my own romantic relationship um my partner is Indian um and I can only imagine like what it was like dating white women back then especially with like the racial aspect but also class I remember being really surprised as I was reading this about with the predominance of white people and white partners and also you were sort of touching on this earlier just like the consistency of messiness in our lives <laughs> and it's both comforting and also a little frustrating or like gives me yeah just that this is this has been going on for a long time like a lot of dating in the community and in movement space right and all and it, and it being hard and, and I think there's a particular irony f with abolitionists and how messy our personal relationships get right and our interpersonal relationships can be and so I guess I'm wondering can you talk more about what did you did you learn anything was that were, were there lessons that you could apply about the ways that Audrey navigates these relationships so that maybe one day we can like figure this out <laughs> Audrey taught me a lot of like what I don't want to do <laughs> it's interesting like there's this like woman that like I really look up to and um, I can really relate to. And then also her life was like really messy. And um, I was reading the other day, apparently she had like a very, a large like temper problem, um, which I don't think is like usually conducive to navigating conflict. Um, 
one thing that I did think about when reading this book was just like how like how would this have worked had she been on social media um like would she be like posting Facebook statuses about like all this stuff that was happening like would she like be in people's dms like arguing with them and I feel like she would be unfortunately um (laughs) so yeah I wouldn't say that I would like navigate conflict the same way she did but it was helpful because I think when you first start organizing and you get into your first like big organizing like conflict or like blow up you might well I personally I was like this has only happened to me or like no one has ever felt this way before or how do I keep going even though like this like awful thing has happened um and then after a couple years I'm like oh great this actually happens every year and a half um so like and you gain tools um and so watching like Audrey like gain tools very slowly throughout the book was just like another reminder that like you can have conflict with people that you care about but you still should and you still can like remain committed to your organizing goals. I'm still thinking about just like how small our like dating circles are and how and and it's because we want to date people that uh, that hold our values, right? And we want to date people that are, you know, on the same path of justice as we are. And so that means that the the, the pool is very small. If you could see my hands right now, I'm in a very small <laughs> little circle. Um and so yeah, it just makes me think about that. And then also I I absolutely agree, Kay, that Audrey would be on Twitter and would be tweeting very like um, passive or like or very like poetic tweets where you're trying to like deconstruct them and be like, what is what does she mean by that? Who is she talking about? Um, I could totally see that happening. Yeah, a lot of but subtext, a lot of subtweeting. A lot, a lot. Yes, <laughs> subtweeting. That's the word. I was trying to think of what it was. Yeah, lots of subtweeting. Has this has this book influenced like the ways that you? that you not just organize, but the ways that you live your daily life? Yeah, um, I think so, like growing up, like I would always be really devastated by like breakups. Um, And my mom would tell me that like, it's important in relationships to like, not give all of yourself so that you're not that upset when things end. But I actually don't live my life that way. And, (laughs) and I think I'm better for it. And I feel like part of the reason why I continue to engage that way is because of like, uh, the way that Audrey loves in this book. Um, like when she falls for someone, she falls hard and, um, she's not like afraid to admit that. And I think that that is something that I strive to like carry into my romantic relationships, especially like especially after abuse. Um, And so I think that's the main way that the book shows up in my life. Um, Just not being afraid to like be hurt or be devastated because like I said, like the love of her life dies. Um, And just, just honoring each relationship for what it is and like what it taught you, even if you weren't necessarily your best self within it, Mm. I think is something that can be learned from the book. I feel I'm like I'm in therapy that. right now. I know. <laughs> I'm like, let me let me filter. <laughs> I don't need to say everything that's going through my head right now. <laughs> and and how about the ways that you organize and strategize? Audrey brings all of herself to her organizing, even if she might be in like predominantly white environments. Um, and Atlanta, I would say the racial makeup for some of the abolitionist groups feels very different 
than it does in Brooklyn where I was organizing previously. Um, so I think this book helps me remember to bring like all of who I am to, to my analysis, um, especially because I feel like a lot of times nowadays, like identity politics are like crapped on and like um, thought of as like the enemy of progress. But I think that like black feminists, especially like Audre Lorde and others um, really like, I guess like show the value of identity politics and like, especially when they're used correctly. Um, so I think that that's something else that I bring into my organizing um, that has been informed by this book. Yeah, I feel like something just shifted in my brain. It's this reframe of, of there's a consistency throughout time of conflict and messiness and um, all that, but also of the persistence of love, right? And the persistence of struggle um, and of connection. Uh, and I think that's, yeah, that's really but that is a choice, right? And that I, I think that there, I, I've seen even in myself moments of how easy it can be to choose bitterness, right? Or to believe that things that are good will always stay that way. And Audrey, doesn't Audrey pass? Audrey died fairly young, no, of cancer. And I think that's significant knowing that. Um, the larger question I have is, is, you know, what, if everyone read this, right? If all of the folks who are out here identifying as black feminists, right, read this, how might it change or, or, push us to, to for our next steps and for the action that we're taking in the current political moment? Hmm. I think that like the importance of romantic love um, isn't, I mean, not, it's not important for everyone, but I feel like a lot of times um, Black women or people perceived um, as Black women are like taught to like not hold out for romantic love because it's not a given. And then when we are given it, um, maybe we're taught to like accept the bare minimum. Um, and I don't think that that is conducive to like showing up as your best self within like organizing spaces. Um, just like entering a space with the preconceived notion that you're not like worthy of love or respect. Like, I don't think that that can actually like help us further campaign goals. So if every self-identified like black feminist were to read this book, I think maybe, I mean, I can't predict the future, but maybe it would help them realize that like they're worthy of love and they're worthy of spending time like cultivating um, these types of friendships too. Um, and I think that, that could be helpful overall. So Audre Lorde was a poet, right? And this book is not a book of poems, but is still poetic in a lot of the ways that she talks through and or gives us imagery. But however, but it's, it's unlike a lot of her other writing. Um, what do you what do you feel is the role of poetry in our movements and in our organizing work? That's the thing. When y'all said Audre Lorde's a poet, I literally forgot. <laughs> <laughs> because I read, I've read so much of her prose um, and so little of her poetry. But also, I think it's important because, like, what your question even reminds me that there's not really a binary between the two. Like, it's mm -hmm. not like um, Audre or like any other poet. It's like okay, I'm not writing poetry now. So the sentences I write now, they're going to be really choppy and they're not going to actually have meaning behind them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that like poetry along with other forms of art allow us to um, imagine like different worlds. And I don't know if Jackie Wang said this, but it's in Jackie Wang's book, Carceral Capitalism. And basically I, I think they're saying that like poets are the timekeepers of the movement. 
Um, mm -hmm. So like they're like tracking like what's happening they have like a, a pulse on like what we're going through and they're able to communicate it in different ways. Um, and so that's what I think of when I think of poetry and organizing It's just like poets are there, they're leading things, but they're also like, they're helping us remember, which yeah. I think is important for the people who come after us. A lot of what Paige and I have also experienced in the past is that we celebrate even smaller wins, right? Even when we lose, we turn those into smaller wins. But there's something about the ways that Audrey talks about not just her her success, right? And in, in whether it's in relationship or whether it's in her academic academic life, but she's also talking about a lot of her pain and a lot of her suffering and a lot of, um, you know, when she went on to write the the cancer journals when she was diagnosed with um, with breast cancer. And so I'm thinking a lot about the ways that poetry can humanize is not the right word, but I think it allows space for us to talk about grief in our work and it, to talk about suffering and pain and how those are just as important to talk about and to name as um, our triumphs and our successes and in our work. And so I just, I thought that that was a, a really beautiful and important piece of not just this book, but of Audre Lorde's work in, in general. Mm-hmm. Like, she's not afraid to be sad and show people yeah. that she's sad. Like, when I think about this book, mm -hmm. I'm not like, this is a happy-go-lucky book. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's yeah. not. Um, there's some parts sprinkled in. Like, she talks about the importance of, like, love and sex and sexuality and friendship. But overall, I would say it's a pretty sad book. Um, mm -hmm. But it's still, like, I mean, I don't know. I love sad books. Like, if someone's like, this book is going to make you cry, then I'm so excited. Um, and I'm not like that with any other form of media, but with books for some reason. Um, but I think someone going into this book, they shouldn't be like expecting like a, like an ex like a really happy story about like Audrey Lord <laughs> being the like black lesbian. No, they should go unprepared knowing that she's going to talk about like a lot of her failures and a lot of the things that didn't work out. But I think that's what makes the book so beautiful. I'm so grateful for the authors that we have that do that work. I think it reminds me a little bit of, of it, they're very different books, but Asada's autobiography, for me, one of the most important things about that book was seeing that she used to do things that were messed up, right? <laughs> and like that she wasn't always revolutionary, right? And radical um, and, and, and seeing those parts of it as well. Because a lot of times the stories and books that we have about movement, I don't know why I'm putting that in air quotes, but about movement are, are yeah, they're, they're, um, they're the lion's story, right? Where it's all, but, and like, and trying to reframe it as a lion story, but it still is like, we also make mistakes and we hurt ourselves. Yeah, it's, I just, I think I really appreciate, and I think that is a contribution of black feminism is showing the wholeness of this, of, of our stories, right? And that it's not always happy and we, it's not always that we win and, and that no one in it gets to be perfect, right? Or claim that. Um, and how much more powerful would we be if we could acknowledge that? Like, because I, I know so many people who don't want to engage because they feel like they aren't this enough or they aren't that enough or they, they can't give X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah, so I just shout out to, to Audrey <laughs> um, and for you for bringing this up. Shout out to the genre of like books that make you cry. It is important. Um, I think a lot lately since I went back into teaching about why stories matter. Um, yeah, and, and questioning fiction versus nonfiction. And I just think this is a what you've shared about this has really helped deepen my thinking around that and why it's important um, 
to tell stories that help us feel and connect with ourselves, even when they're mirrors into other or windows into other people's worlds, um, and how much they can reveal about our own selves and our own time, um, and and how much truth they can bring to our lives, even when we don't know what's actually fact or fiction in the, the stories. Thank you, Kay, for being with us for rescheduling with us I think five times six times I don't know <laughs> and the and today finally getting to connect it was a real pleasure just getting to to talk to you and hear um hear a little bit about you and the work that you're doing and the things that you're thinking about I really appreciate it so thank you and anytime you want to close us out I'll, we'll be here <laughs> it, warned, it is really sad <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Episode that makes you cry. <laughs> okay. So this is after um, Audrey's like lover dies. Um, a few months after Jenny's death, I walked down Broadway late one Saturday afternoon. I had just had another argument with my mother and I was going to the AMP to get milk. I dawdled along the avenue looking into shop windows, not wanting to return to the tensions and misunderstandings waiting for me at home. I paused in front of Stoltz Jewelers, admiring their new display. In particular, I marked a pair of hanging earrings of black opals set into worked silver. Jenny will love these, I thought. I must remember to tell her. And then it hit me again that Jenny was dead. And that meant that she would never be there ever again. It meant that I could not ever tell her anything more. It meant that whether I loved her or was angry at her or wanted her to see a new pair of earrings, none of that mattered or would ever matter to her again. I could share nothing at all with her anymore because she was gone. And even after all the past weeks of secret mourning, Jenny's death became real to me in a, diff in a different way. I turned away from the jewelry store window and right then and there in the middle of Broadway and 151st Street on a Saturday afternoon at the beginning of the summer of my 16th year, I decided that I would never love anybody else again for the rest of my life. Jenny had been the first person in my life I was conscious of loving, and she had died. Loving hurt too much. My mother had turned into a demon intent on destroying me. You loved people, and you came to depend on them, on their being there. But people died or changed or went away, and it hurt too much. The only way to avoid that pain was to not love anyone and to not let anyone get too close or too important. The secret to not being hurt like this again, I decided, was never depending on anyone, never needing, never loving. I'm honestly thinking of past me because mm. past me would be like, she's right. Um, you really shouldn't love anyone to like, so you can avoid being hurt. Mm. Um, now I'm like, I think she's completely wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so relatable. It's so devastating. And you should love again. Um, and I think that later she goes on to like sh share that, um, like sh just share how she does love again. Um, and then I guess something I didn't talk about in the, like the interview is just Jenny died when she was like, when Audrey was like 16, she never really moved on from it. And something that happens to me is like when traumatic or like messed up things happen in my life, I'm like, oh, it was four months ago, move on. Oh, it was four years ago, move on. Um, and Audrey reminds me like, there's no time limit for how long something impacts you. And there's no time limit for grieving, mm -hmm. um, especially because I lost my grandma in June and it still feels so fresh. And even then I'm still telling myself that I should be moving on really quickly, even though I, I loved her. Um, and so 
that's something that Zami just teaches me that like there are things in your life that might feel big or small or they might happen when you're like two or like when you're like 52 um and they'll always impact you and and that's okay and you shouldn't feel shame about that so the fact that she dedicated so much of the book to someone who died so early in her life um I think really reinforced that for me I've I've stepped away from organizing recently and I'm sort of recalibrating um and a lot of it is because of just like how um this it breaks your heart right and some of that is just being a human right it's just like it's not the mood it's just like people die right and it have and um and they die tragically um and people abuse you and people uh and and people will break your heart um and life will break your heart and i don't and that, and that we are learning, and that's the work of abolition, is learning how to be in community, right? Even though no one is ever, no one's saying that through abolition we'll become perfect people who don't hurt each other ever, right? That's not what we're doing. Um, but that, but we, it does acknowledge that we really need to rebuild and re, and create new skills for how we respond to these things. And so, okay, what is the question though? Um, I'm thinking about. But yeah, like I, it's, it's, there's that, a roomy line from a poem about like each wound is where the, is where uh, it, like it, it, it reframes death and like losses, like having these wounds that light can go shine through. Um, and you can grow a lot from loss and grief, um, but it can also be really devastating. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, what would you tell yourself when you were entering organizing? What do you wish maybe you had known um, or could say to yourself about the reality of heartbreak? You're saying these things, but and, and the importance of, of healing and staying. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, how do those things all go together? What do you wish you could say to younger Kay? Yeah, someone asked me this question on Thursday, actually. Um, and again, this sounds depressing. I just want to preface all this that I'm a cancer. So <laughs> that's why you might like see me reaching towards like the emotional things. But um, I would just tell my tell younger me um, that I think that like when I first came to organizing, I, I thought you would never feel alone because you were always with the group. Um, you were always working on stuff together. And because I had spent so much of my life feeling isolated because of my political beliefs, I thought like when I found organizing, like that was it, that was the end of feeling alone. But um, I would just tell my younger self that you will still continue to feel isolated. Um, there'll be days where you feel so connected to your comrades, your group, the work that you're doing, but um, that like empty or that lonely feeling that you're feeling inside, it, organizing can't fix that and it and it's not up to organizing to fix that um and I think like knowing that and like working through that is how you can show up as a better like friend lover and organizer um I think sometimes the conflict that we find in organizing is like people trying to like fix that lonely feeling um and going about it in unhealthy ways or unproductive ways mm -hmm. um and so yeah just reminding younger me that like you can't find all your self-worth or your self-love or all your healing through through organizing. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's not important. It, that's just not the purpose that it serves, in my opinion. What Paige, what would you tell your what would you tell younger Paige about organizing? I I don't know. Um I I wish I would have started journaling sooner. I would have journaled. Uh, I don't know. 
Um, I, I think a lot of, of things that are really important to me wouldn't have happened without a level of being naive and overly optimistic. Um, yeah, like, because I can become, be a, in the words of, oh no, this is Octavia Butler, but I'm a pessimist if I'm not careful, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, I think those things, um, I think I, exactly what you're saying, Kay, I, it took me a while to re recognize that that's a lot of what happens is people are coming, expect, looking for, um, because they wanted the world to be better and also because we want our lives to be better and, and are, we live really isolated, alienated lives that with a cl with a constant cloud of social media adding a level of like well what's wrong with you why would you, why are you sad and lonely when your life could look like this right it's just um yeah and i think i would have gotten off social off the social media a lot sooner or not been as into it but yeah i i, I don't know i don't know what i would have told myself cuz i i love so much of what has happened but it it is i'm also really sad yeah and i i just don't think i was um, yeah, I don't know what I want to share here. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. that's part of the awkwardness too. So anyways, what would you tell yourself, Monica? <laughs> oh gosh. I knew I, actually, I knew I shouldn't have asked you cause I knew you were going to ask me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've, I'm, I've been thinking about as someone who, as someone who has also not been organizing this year, I, I'm thinking a lot about, uh, grief, particu particularly that the, the grief never ends that when we when we run these campaigns and when we when we do this organizing work to end police to end policing that there there is still death there is still loss there is still that doesn't go away ever and we don't get past this loss we learn how to live with it and we learn how to move through it and move with it and grow around it and I wish I had known that sooner. And I'm glad that I know that now. And I'm glad that people are talking about grief a lot more. I think I'm thinking a lot about um, this article that I've read several times this year. Uh, I, I just pulled it up actually by uh, Malkia Devich Syro. Uh, the, the article is called Grief Belongs in Social Movements. Can We Embrace It? And it was um, published through In These Times. And one of the you know one of the things that Malkia is talking about is how to be to be black and indigenous or a, a person of color uh, or any you know a, oppressed class in America is to know traumatic loss and that's just the that that's that's it we just it is to know that and one of the last lines of the articles that I sit with a lot is to have a movement that breathes you must build a movement with the capacity to grieve and so bringing it back to Audrey's book I love I love this book because she doesn't resist grief she doesn't resist that sadness she moves through it and she shares it with us and she says you know this happened and it has shaped me in this way and I really love that and I hope I hope for more of that in our in our spaces and in our in our movements. Beautiful, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I yeah. Now we, I just, went, I, we went. We there. went there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, today is gonna be a weird day. I'm in my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> now I need to go and like lesson plan. Oh my god. <laughs> what can but Kate? Can you say a little bit about what your thoughts are on the role of what is the role of mythology 
in our movements, in our in our histories and in our future organizing. Yeah, I mean, I think that mythology, which is the world's hardest word to pronounce, I think that's so essential in organizing, but especially with abolitionist organizing, because like none of us have been alive um, without the threat of policing. Like we haven't been alive to experience that at all. I mean, that's true with like all organizing, but I think it's like very, very unique with like abolitionist work um, because of just how how ingrained and like normalized um, the prison industrial complex is like in um, our everyday lives. And also just like how upset people get when you're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have this. Um, so if we didn't have the, the ability to like, um, to be creative or like come up with like, um, a new history for us or a new, a new future for us. Um, I think that it would be very, very, very hard to like organize, especially under these conditions. Um, and so I think that's like the power of like mythology is just, I guess also it's something that Zami teaches me. Like earlier when I was saying that this book is so, it's hard to figure out what's like fact or fiction. Um, I think that that's, maybe that's something that I wanna like break down more in the future, but I think that's something that we could use. Um, mm -hmm. Just like, just how like she talked about the past and I'm like, I'm not sure, did that actually happen or did she, did she kind of like add on to that? I think that's something that we can use when we're also envisioning the future. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's something I need to come back to to think about more. I'm thinking about how someone has said, and I believe it's Emery Douglas, but I, I actually don't know, so I don't want to like say that he said this, but I've, I've read somewhere that visual art and, and posters and propaganda, um, such as Emery Douglas's work um, through the Black Panther Party, for the covers of the, the the newspapers, created this visual mythology of power for people who felt powerless at many moments in their lives, throughout their lives. And so I, it's making me think about, again, the role of art and, and poetry in creating a visual mythology of power for, um, for um, black people and indigenous people and people of color, and but also how it provides this net of safety, but also connection to the possibilities of, of liberation if we keep working towards it, right? If we keep working every day towards it. And so, yeah, I, I think a lot about the role of mythology and I, it's something I also want to explore a little bit more too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the question of what I would tell my younger self, I think that's another part. It's just like, I used to, when bad, think traumatic things were happening, I would just say, like, I just got to push it down and I would visualize pushing it into my right foot. Um, and my leg, my right leg started to go numb. Um, and then recently with like acupuncture, it's just this like really intense trigger point that like releases, a, uh, I have a lot of like pain there. Anyways, so there's all these things and I, I wish I'd... Um, for me, a big thing, history has been so helpful in my organizing because of the like the the understanding how we got where we got, but all just the the mythology of it, right? And no, and the stories that have helped to inspire people who their whole world was slavery, right? And like uh, uh, and being able to imagine beyond that and to be and to the the hope that it takes to be willing to fight back when like you're in the middle of a land you don't know like I, I just I, I cannot comprehend um 
just like what it takes to be willing to, to take on slavery, right? Um, I know there's a lot of parallels with abolition, but, but I do, I think that mythology is really important. Um, and I think it's not a, a coincidence that so many young people are drawn to books of mythology. And that's a big part of our life as we're discovering the world as young people, that those are stories that we're really drawn to. Um, and then, and I, but then, and then this thing happens where adults tell you that that's make believe, right? Like all these things that start to happen. And, um, and I think that's very Western too, uh, as well. It's just like, we live in a society that wants us to treat those as like unimportant stories and just like Marvel universe. Right. But the, it, it, it's, it's significant to me that so many children love those stories, um, and find, uh, find themselves in those stories. And I think we need more of that for sure. I love where this conversation went and I'm so thankful for it and I can't wait to re-listen to it. And so thank you, Kay, so much for joining us today. Thank you. And like, it's been good to like, like this conversation was very helpful. Um, like it was great meeting you, Paige, but Monica and I used to work together like when I was like a lot younger. Yeah, I was an undergrad. So yeah, it's just really nice to reconnect with you throughout the years um, and catch up with you. So that's been really, really oh. great. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I I really we've I feel like we've like ebbed and flowed throughout life both in person and then online and now here we are. Yeah. And I love I love the path we're on. <laughs> we'll see you in three years or something. Right, exactly. Yes. Thank you, Kay. It was nice talking Thank to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about a book that has shaped their organizing work. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionists, cultural workers, and cat mamas who love nerding out on books and creating spark notes for our movements. Production this season is by Benji Russellberg. Intro music is by David Ellis with production by Ari Mejia and social media support from Alicia Camel. If you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And if you like our podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help widen our reach. Financial support for the production of this podcast season is thanks to the Field Foundation of Illinois and our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelitreview. Keep reading!